So a very warm welcome to episode 22 of the Happy Hockey podcast. My name is Peter Thomas and I'm the head coach and uh, founder of Happy Hockey. And my guest today is Mr. Vili Van Zyl, uh, all the way from South Africa and then also Brighton. Vili, a very warm welcome. Thank you, Peter. Delighted to be here. Good to have you on. And uh, about time, I think, we've been talking about doing this for quite a while. Yes, yes. And uh, sorry that it's been taking so long, but it just means we've got more stuff to talk about. Exactly. And not at all. It's great to, to have you on. Um, just to anyone out there listening for the first time. So the Happy Hockey podcast, each uh, each episode, just like a game of hockey, has two halves. The first half We'll hear from Philly about his journey from growing up in South Africa to his current uh, residency uh, in Brighton. Um, the halftime interlude this week will be from me on a book called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, but some more interesting uh, sort of snippets from that later on. And then the second half, we'll go back to Vili about um, his new YouTube channel, Vili Explore, and how he set that up and how it all, is all around his desire and, and very much key to his life is, is traveling all over the world uh, finally we'll ask Vili to leave us with his three key takeaways and that should wrap it all up within uh, 60 to 70 minutes just as ever like a game of hockey so uh, without further ado uh, Vili over to you um, you know where did it all start in back home yeah thank you Peter um, yeah so as you mentioned I'm from South Africa originally so I moved to England when I was um, 26 years old. Wow. That's yeah. when I moved to England. And it was a very, very interesting time of my life as well because I spent the previous year in Germany. And when I went to Germany, that was a real baptism of fire. It's the first time that I've lived outside of my home country. And it was all very strange and all very foreign. People spoke German, I spoke English and Afrikaans. Uh, and it was the first time, really, that I felt that I needed to start traveling a little bit to actually improve my mental health. So that, that was a key part of why the traveling thing became important. Okay. And, uh, and then I moved to the UK the following year. So that, that is basically the sort of, uh, you know, where it sort of all started. Uh, but then I guess previous to that as well, uh, part of the story is that, yes, Growing up in South Africa, it's geographically and culturally very isolated from the rest of the world. You know, it's far away. Um, I'm sure you've met other people from, say, Australia, New Zealand, Aussies and Kiwis who love traveling as well, just simply because they can't jump on a plane to Europe. Um, it's not easy when you live in Sydney or in Cape Town to go to Barcelona for a weekend, if you know what I mean. So, mm. Yeah, true. So that was it. And then... Uh, yeah, I, I also spent time in several primary schools and high schools in South Africa. And I think uh, that is also important because it allowed me to learn to adapt to new environments, which I um, later on in my life became uh, became quite a useful thing. Yeah, because you, at what age did you, did you spoke Afrikaans for the first, was it seven, eight years? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So actually, that's... Uh, People are often surprised when I when I say this, but uh, yeah, grew up uh, speaking Afrikaans, and then you only start learning English at school. So uh, when you start to go to primary school, although having said that, television and, and movies, you know, the Americanization of, of our culture and mm -hmm. 
also, I guess, British TV programs um, uh, helped a little bit as well. So, you know, cricket commentators and movie actors all, all sort of contributed to my English, uh, English education. And I suppose that's at a time before they were able to dub things with different languages so easily. So everything was in English, but with subtitles, was it? Yes, yes. Uh, from memory, that's it. I mean, it, it also depended on the programme. Um, several of the programmes were, were just translate, translated into Afrikaans and been, and been uh, dubbed as well. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to sort of figure, so, so, you know, Matlock or sort of specific, specific kind of um, crime programmes and detective programmes were often good candidates for being translated into Afrikaans and then subtitled. So, yeah. Okay. So, and how was that then, learning a second language when you went to school? Yeah, you know what, actually, I don't really know. Um, you know, well, it all kind of felt, felt, felt seamless, you know, I think, I think because I, and you also learn it from a young age, it's not like trying to learn to speak German when you're 25, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so it's, it's a little bit different. Um, it just became second nature, I guess. I haven't lost the accent, apparently, so... The Afrikaans accent. Yes, yeah, it's it's still very much there, but um, hopefully it's a little bit softer than when I first arrived here. Well, yeah, I I would imagine so. It's I mean it's although it, you've definitely still got a, a despite you bought it's sixteen years in the UK, it's still yes. quite, still quite a strong South African accent, which is good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that and and so you mentioned different schools. How did you? What, what was your what was your route there? Yeah, so my, my parents moved around quite a bit. So first grew up in a, a town called Lambert's Bay on the west coast of South Africa. And then uh, my parents moved to Kimberley, which is, if you look uh, if you look at a map of South Africa, I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, diamond mining history of South Africa. So uh, that's basically where um, a lot of the diamonds that, that have been mined in South Africa sort of stem from there compared to say the gold which is more johannesburg kind of area that barters run and then after kimberley were, went to uppington which is also in the northern cape part of south africa spent a couple of years there and then moved back down to the cape province uh to khansby which is uh the shark age capital of south africa okay so even so, from yeah. a young age you were moving around a bit yeah, it was, and it's funny because you know, even even at that age, uh, it was it was tough for me. Uh, it was a kind of a mixture of feelings, you know. But one hand, it was it was tough adapting to new environments, and and just as you started to settle, make new friends in school, you know, then all of a sudden your parents, you know, they, they pull stumps and they and they move somewhere else. But there was also a bit of an excitement attached to that as well, you know, like like years another journey that comes because. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we didn't have a lot of, like I say, opportunities to travel to other countries, for example. So, so in a way, going to my grandfather's farm over winter holidays and maybe the occasional beach holiday in summer, but but that was it, you know, um, that was it. So, so your other forms of travel was really moving between towns. Yeah, and, and just it made me think, how big is South Africa in comparison to the UK? So, yeah, um, population-wise, 
don't quote me on this because you know you can uh, you can never really trust the census figures in in South Africa. But it's about sort of sixty million people. So it's about roughly a similar number of people. And, and I think I've heard um, a comparison that that England, so so not the UK, but England is the same size as the uh, Free State Province in South Africa. So South Africa as a country is is roughly twice. It's basically France and Germany combined. I, I'd say. I think so. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's because, it's, of course, when you're looking on a TV screen or, or a map of the world and you've the pages are the same sort of TV screens, the same size, you get the, uh, you can get a misrepresentation, can't you, of how big things are comparatively because everything right. fits the page. But yeah, so you're probably talking what, gosh, six, seven times the size of the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's a question for Google. Uh, yeah, it's a good one to go and ask that. But but yeah, certainly a massive country, low population density, of course. So you've got yeah. Uh, so the UK's got more people than South Africa, uh, which is is bizarre um, in, in in a way because uh, when whenever I travel in England, I know there's a there's a big sentiment about too many people in the country, and uh, not necessarily that we need to steer the conversation in that direction. But there's so much green spaces and. Mm-hmm. And, and great natural places to visit you know england is in many ways one of my favorite places in the world to travel but yeah bizarre that they've got this large population um compared to other countries such as south africa and in australia for example i've got even less people and obviously a lot bigger than uh, than south africa yeah and certainly going back to the english population i remember being at school so what 22 years ago or so a level geography and even then it was only about 10.8 percent projected to get to about 11 um, percent uh, coverage of, of urban areas in the uk uh, at the time um, right so it, we still got a good 87 88 possibly 89 percent of, of the uk is still natural um it's only a very you know in comparison to actually what we think about it's it's actually still only about 11 percent of the country is covered so it's very densely populated in the areas where people live, but there is still a huge amount of natural beauty and, and, uh, and natural land. And long may that continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, albeit clearly nowhere near as much as South Africa or certainly um, Australia. But I suppose some of that comes down to whether or not the, the land is, is habitable. Is that the yeah. case in South Africa? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's the case there. Of course, land ownership. Uh, is also a, a very contentious political topic uh, back in South Africa for historical reasons. Um, but also, yeah, it, it, you know, the whole sort of arable land argument that, uh, yeah, it's not just easy taking land and starting a farm. It doesn't, it doesn't quite work like that. So, hmm. and, and in terms of their football, so you talk about land and your grandfather was farmers. What did your parents do? So my dad was a, a, a church minister mm-hmm. um, for the Dutch Reformed Church. So uh, it's like it's like the Protestant um, arm uh, in, in South Africa. And my mum used to work as a, as a tour operator, uh, someone who did an administration for a tour company. But uh, she only did that for a few years. Mostly she was just staying at home, uh, looking after us as, as children. And remind me, you say us, how many are there of you? you right, you... yes. So, so I've got two younger brothers. So it's three of you. The three of us, yes. Yeah. Um, 
cool so so in some ways you sort of if you look at that i didn't perhaps realize i knew your dad was a a, a minister but your mum was a, involved in a travel operator so you sort of got both those bits that you're traveling and your 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 lifestyle sort of um hit on from from both of them combining the mental health part and the spirituality of the traveling with from your dad or with the traveling part from your mum in some yeah, way yeah i think so pete i think uh, my mum was always the one who tried to sort of push me uh use the expression sort of broaden my horizons and get getting wings and, and go and see different parts of the world uh, she fell in love with places like greece and turkey she didn't travel much herself mostly the sort of mediterranean countries uh, that that her tour company sort of um, or the company that she worked for went to so she would uh, I, I can't even remember if she actually earned a salary but i think i think part of her reward package was just getting a flight ticket to say go to turkey or, or to greece wow and stuff you know so so she for her obviously that was an opportunity that she used and uh, and i'm sure we'll get to it so obviously a big part of my my travels is to is to give back to my parents and to other people around the world as well who's, who supported me and and actually taking footage of places that i go to now gives them that opportunity to see places through my eyes and uh, and explore something different yeah which actually i'd never i suppose i hadn't thought about that with you and uh, that giving back but it's a really good a very selfless way of looking at, at your your travels and your youtube um channel just to to give back that's quite a yeah different different take on it yes yes i suppose so and uh, i think that that's that that just adds to the excitement because you're not just traveling on your own especially well solo traveling can be a tough gig you know it can get quite lonely and, and, and mm. actually quite quite difficult depending on where you are in the world as well so mm-hmm. uh pretending like there's someone with you you know with a, talking to the camera and you talk to a number of subscribers instead you know that that does make a big difference and how many are you up to at the moment what countries or well, both i was thinking subscribers but Oh, right. Yeah. So, gosh, I need to check, actually. I think, uh, well, the other day I, I reached 800. So my immediate goal is to get 1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, that means the channel can get monetized. And I can also, there's also other benefits such as live streaming perks uh, that go up. And, uh, and yeah, countries, country-wise, <laughs> that's a contentious one because it depends on how you count them. <laughs> so uh, do you count the uk as one country do you count uh, the four nations as, as four countries uh, if you do the latter then i'm up to um, around 70 countries but uh, i think everyone has their own rules for how they how they count those so i think it's a bit of a um an, an interesting discussion but but often you know i think people just also um yeah change, change the rules just to suit their own agenda sometimes <laughs> But that's more than just a few, though, isn't it? You're you're really starting to make um, sort of uh, way towards well, halfway there. I think there was about 190 different countries, but a bit more, perhaps. Yeah, 196 or seven, I think. Um, yeah, around that. So, and then yeah, it's uh, getting getting to all of them is going to be a huge challenge. But uh, I'm going to give it a good shot. Yeah, I'm going to give it a good shot. And in terms of, I suppose, just going back to you and 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 bef- what before you sort of moved to Germany first. So your so you went through school and 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 what was there anything? Because did you go to university in in South Africa as well? Yes, I did. So I went to Stellenbosch University, 
which is a sort of Wineland area, uh, not too far from Cape Town in the Cape Province area. Um, did a master's degree there and then uh, worked a little bit sort of ad hoc research jobs, uh, economic research jobs, and also worked in a nightclub um, serving very thirsty students, uh, some brandy and Coke or vodka tonics, etc. And then I, that was, a, that was a stage of my life where I wondered what the next steps were going to be. You know, do I, do I go for full-time employment? Because I always had this desire to go traveling and I never really had the, the monetary means to do it. So I, I had all the emotional or uh, psychological support from people, but never the financial support. So, so I had to sort of basically do it myself. And, and the only way that I could, or there were two ways, frankly, that I could get abroad. Uh, one was to either find a job abroad or find a scholarship abroad for uh, another degree course. And I managed to get one in Germany, so so that was my that was my ticket to the world, which I oh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, didn't know that. Yes, yeah. So oh, I I oh. did another master's degree, so a joint master's in Germany and in the UK. So one year in Leipzig in the east, and then one year in London, and uh, and and the second year in London was essentially my ticket into the UK as well. Oh, were you studying in English in Leipzig? Like the, the course was in English. The course itself was in English. Yeah. So it was it was under the Erasmus Mundus umbrella. Yeah. Um, and basically, the course was was set up so that the the German and the European students could interact with people from all over the world. So they brought in people from uh, various different countries. I think there were about 40, 40 different nationalities in my class. In, in the course, which was a which was fascinating, but also very daunting at the same time. You know, it was the first time I've spoken to Americans. It was the first time I've met people from uh, Colombia and from Brazil, for example. Mm. So um, that was it was exciting, but like I say, also daunting. But the course was luckily in English. But your everyday life, I mean, going to the shop, going to the supermarkets, going to the bank. Uh, if you didn't know German, and, and my German was 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 very basic, uh, you, you struggled to make friends, or you'd you'd struggle to actually have a have a life outside of a classroom. And and there was obviously uh, I mentioned earlier some some mental health difficulties that 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 came with it. And it was the first time that I was sort of really challenged in my life, as sort of really now this is outside of my comfort zone. Now I need to sort of um, it's it's been thrown into the deep end, and I need to learn to swim. Yeah, no, just I suppose going back to you, you said you had two ways out. What what was it do you think that motivated you to go? Yeah, I think I think various various different factors. I think the first thing, uh, just to be honest and, and true to myself, I I didn't really want to move to Johannesburg, which was the right uh, the only sort of real opportunities I had at that stage was was to move up up there. Um, there were there were a few sort of research jobs I did in Stellenbosch and in Cape Town, but but nothing to really merit full-time employment. So that was a big sort of big uh, factor to move out. Uh, and, and the second part was, like I mentioned, uh, just to, I, I had this desire to, to study further as well um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and to educate myself further. So there were various uh, contributing factors, but I think just, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily ready for a, a, a normal linear life, like a nine to five, Mm. Uh, getting married at 25, 
that that kind of sort of path that most people, I guess, sort of um, the, the tunnel vision that that most people had. Uh, I was never one of those people, so so I had to find an excuse to get out. And and when you went to Leipzig, were there any other South Africans? So there was one other South African um, that went with me. So uh, bizarrely, actually, the, the, the course that I applied for was actually a political science scholarship. Mm. And it was, it was um, targeted to people who studied political science. Uh, uh, and Stellenbosch was one of the partner universities of, of, of Leipzig. So when, mm. they saw, when they saw Willy Van Ziel on the, on the list there, um, and I was from the economics department, people were like, wow, who's, who's this guy? Um, so, so I had to meet up with... Uh, uh, with a lady called Mikaela, that was her name, um, from the political science department, and we went. We actually flew to to um, to Germany together on a on the same Qatar Airways flight. Uh, yes, that was a that was a tough uh, saying goodbye to our our people at the airport, our parents and and friends and family. Uh, something we, I guess, to this day we share that emotional experience, uh, mm. and and it's it's it was a quite a profound moment to be together there and uh, I actually told her listen just give that that mountain she had, she had the window seat I told her give that mountain one good final look because because here we go now does that be that would be the table that would be the table one yes yeah but I suppose just in thinking about it now because uh, I we're going to Germany um and because from such a long way away and potentially a lot of it on your own. Was there any, it's interesting now you talk about sort of the mental health side, but was there any sort of preparation given to you or were you very much sort of um, on your own, bizarre, excluding perhaps the support you could get in Germany? Was there any prep or anything? No, not really. No, so it was, this was, this was I guess, part of the excitement but also part of the nerves. It was very much of a, a, a fact of, you know, um, let's go and see what happens. Uh, had no idea what to expect, really. Uh, I did try and take a, a German intermediate sort of or, or beginner course rather not intermediate mm-hmm. beginner course which later on I guess became sort of more of a intermediate one mm-hmm. uh, but but that was just I guess an, an extra subject that I took um, through an online university in South Africa uh, only did a sort of few modules and then then I was like what actually but as soon as I found out the course was going to be in English um, I think that actually counted against me picking up more German because I, I guess i just sort of said, nah, you know, this is it. I'll, I'll focus on other things. Um, so, you know, preparing myself mentally a little bit more, maybe read a few more books about, about the culture, spend my time that way rather than learning the language. So, yeah, there was, in terms of preparation, and remember, this was before Facebook, uh, this was before Skype. So, you know, the social media thing didn't, didn't exist back then. I remember arriving uh, in Leipzig, uh, the only way that I could phone or, or get in touch with my parents was with, with a very expensive phone call. Mm. Um, and, and you basically only phone them maybe you know, once, maybe twice a month. You would, you would go to an internet cafe. I don't know if you remember those days. And then, and then uh, you know, calling, calling people or send, sending emails and stuff. So, yeah. But I have to say as well, so, so this, this helped me quite a bit in Germany because this mm. was – my Facebook actually got set up by, by a classmate. So she helped me set, set up Facebook. And she was my first Facebook friend. And I also subsequently sort of got in touch with YouTube, watching YouTube videos 
and also, I guess, uh, rugby sites in South Africa. So, so I couldn't watch rugby games. I'm a big rugby fan, but I could follow uh, commentary from people online, Crick Info, these kind of sites uh, sort of sprang up. So I did spend a lot of time on my own in front of a computer, which, as I guess you will, you will know, and I think many people who've lived through the pandemic will know as well. So you need to get that balance right. You can't sit in front of a computer all day. But I probably spent too much time uh, in that case because it was all new and exciting. But mm. uh, but yeah, the result was that I was very isolated, um, very homesick at some at, at some point. Uh, but it was kind of like my military service in a way. You know, you had to go through that, um, and and it, it's actually. It, it left you for the better. Looking back at it now, it was a it was a very very tough arduous experience, but but going through it, it really set me up well. So hold on, military service. You did military service as well, or did no this... no so 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 no no my my sort of uh, peers and myself we we missed the cut for for military service in okay. South Africa by a few yeah. years. But all of our parents, uh, all of our fathers or uncles or many in the family would have gone through military service. So either the army, Navy, Air Force. Um, I even have a relative who was a, uh, uh, a guard for the, uh, the, one of the former presidents. So he didn't do national service. Well, that was his service, just, just protecting the, uh, uh, the president. But, so, but yeah, that was two years of your life that, that basically you gave to the state and you never got back. So, that was probably another motivation for me going abroad. So I had two years, which I basically saw as a type of military service. Mm. So um, I didn't think I would I would lose anything necessarily from a from a CV perspective. In fact, I would only gain from it, and obviously then uh, try and use Europe as a base to travel and and and, and see more of the world. Yeah, but I suppose as you say, it's interesting that you spent. So you d- didn't you didn't just only go to a new country, but in the other hemisphere, um, and in uh, uh, in in an, in another with another language, where you didn't really know anybody, and you were studying, and and then the things that you were doing in order to to stay in touch with people back home were all things that that sort of kept you um, sort of I suppose away from other people. So. An incredibly challenging time for you, and understandably, you sort of found travel as an outlet. Yes, I did, and but initially, actually, I was—I I didn't know how to. I didn't have the skills. You know, it's—it's it's all good and well. You're going to say you're going to travel the world, but then mm-hmm. when you uh, when you start looking for flights and you need to press the uh, the green button on those on those um, prices that you've that you've just seen, you know, that's a different different ball game. So. So actually, you know, it was a it, it, getting started was was tough, and and I think initially we did a few sort of group trips through people in my class, uh, mostly just to other German cities first, like Dresden or Berlin or mm-hmm. Munich, etc. And then later on, you know, we would move on to Prague, and and some other places in Eastern Europe. Uh, I think some people went to Budapest. I went to Italy okay. uh, on my own for about a week, which was, I guess, my, my first real solo trip that I, that I did. Where did you go? Uh, so I flew into Venice, and then I also went to Florence and uh, finished off in Trieste, close to the Slovenian border, because I had a, a friend from Leipzig, actually, who, uh, who uh, Italian friend, so she studied there as well. So she invited me for a, a few days, and, and we traveled up in, in that part. 
Wow. Okay. So yeah. So interesting. So you you sort of found it. Or what was it that helped you? Do you think, apart from having other people, but but to hit those green buttons, as you say, and, and start to actually venture out. So so my mum was actually instrumental in this. So so I I I found a flight to Barcelona, but it was three hundred euros, and yep. and I just. I, I just still, I still was still converting from rand to euro, and it was just, I, I just could not justify. It. And my mom basically forced me to 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 pay that flight ticket. She said, "You will do this um, uh, and go for it." So, so I, I mentioned that Italy was my first sort of sort of solo trip, mm-hmm. uh, but this was um, a, a trip to Barcelona, where again uh, the um, Colombian friend of mine which i mentioned earlier uh, from from class as well at a at a boyfriend who lived in barcelona and they invited me for a for a weekend over oh wow so so it was a free on and i know i mentioned it was because you've been to barcelona quite a few times so so mm-hmm. you know the sort of route but um i flew via palma mallorca right yes and uh, and the funny thing is you know I've, I've i've been on so many different flights and train journeys and and you hardly remember any of that but i do remember that that particular flight from leipzig halle to palma mallorca and then to barcelona just because it again you know it's it's it was probably the adrenaline and the excitement that that uh, that basically told me listen you need to make a mental note here of of, of, of what you're going to see and experience yeah well and what do you remember about barcelona whereabouts did you go do you remember so, gosh, no, it was <laughs> the funny thing about that trip was I, I spent more time sort of helping them refurbish their flat than actually, <laughs> an actual sightseeing. So it was a bit of a, yeah, let's, let's not go there too much. But no, um, usual stuff, you know, um, Sagrada Familia, saw yeah. that. Um, went right. to some of the beaches. Um, yeah. l- looking back at it now, I know I was in La, La Rambla, but I didn't, didn't recognize it as such in the beginning. Right. The famous you know, statue of Christopher Columbus. I have a nice picture of sort of pointing in the same direction as he did towards the Americas. So yeah. uh, all the usual stuff. But it was, a, yeah, it was, a, it, a, again, like I said, it was a very, uh, it was not your normal sort of tourist holiday, but, but, but I guess for me, that, that trip was more about getting on the plane rather than the, dest- than the destination itself. And, and I think that sort of showed me that, yeah, I can, I can do this. I can go on my own to places and, um, and navigate through various websites and and actually have a guts to book these trips, despite having travelled thousands of miles to, to live somewhere else for for two years in two different countries. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That step was actually quite a big one. Yeah, well, well, still today, you know, if what if, let's say you want to go to Azerbaijan or Georgia or Armenia, you know, when I search Skyscanner or Apodo or any of these sites, and and then they spew out that. The, the price and and you start thinking about your logistics and itinerary you, you sort of you sort of doubt yourself you know do i really should i book this you know is it is it time to go and um i've i've learned over time just to say no to that little voice on your shoulder but it's but it's still there yeah so so you so yeah so you so growing up south africa moving around a bit you you went to university but but wanted a wanted a new challenge as you say it's almost like your your military service you took a year in germany and then and then it was to London. Now, how was that having sort of lived in a place where you're, you, you, it, you weren't, you weren't German speaking fluent, but to, to go to London, how did that change things? 
Yeah, it did. It did change quite a bit, Peter. So all of a sudden, I guess people recognised my Springbok jersey and recognised my accent, and and that made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, the course itself that I did was was challenging, but it was it was very intellectually stimulating. Uh, that that helped a bit, but then. Also, I guess the other thing to remember here, uh, at the time of my graduation, um, a few weeks before then, Lehman Brothers collapsed in the US and it, it was the start of a GFC global financial crisis. So, oh, yeah, 2008. Year I, yeah, so year I was stuck in, uh, in a country with no UK work experience. I only had South African work experience, very little contacts. Um, you know, so, so actually I felt into... Uh, a, a bit of a depression back then. It was uh, it was tough going, and and I had to sort of start started doing manual labour jobs on the London Underground, or worked in bars, uh, worked in uh, for various catering companies. The nice thing about that though was I I men, managed to end up at uh, many of the sports stadiums, you know, like Lords and Twickenham, Wembley. So so not many people would have had access to some of the rooms and and hallways that i had had access to or, or could walk in but but obviously you know you were there to work and you met but, one great spin bowler did you not from what i remember? yes i did i actually did mr shane warren so uh yeah managed to get his autograph as well and i remember one of the supervisors actually told me afterwards so hey what were you doing um, i said well no listen i had to speak to this person and get his autograph and and he said well actually we, we don't do stuff like that um to be careful well and I, I basically just told him straight up i said listen mate this is worth getting fired for um you know speaking to a man like that i would have i would have happily walked away from my job yeah and so I, I hadn't really thought about it but yeah when you went being in germany of course with not really playing perhaps rugby and, and cricket two of your great um loves outside of sort of studying not only were you not able to speak the language but actually a lot of the cultural things that you would have been able to go to and get involved in weren't there either or if they were they're certainly not to the same extent yeah so- that's right that's right and it was you know it's it's funny how the brain works i went over to germany and uh, it was just after the, the 2004 uh, well i say just after a few years you know which which was held in athens but they actually beat cape town to it um and when I got to Germany and I actually realized how how poorly South Africa was perceived in, in the external world as well. You know, but at least in South Africa, you know, we could we could we can speak multiple languages. We're not uh, we most most people can only speak one language in the world. And I know going to Barcelona, that really annoyed me as well, who hosted the ninety two uh, Olympics. Mm. And in parts of parts of Barcelona you can't drink the tap water. And I was like, well, the, the world media, you know, is so um, so negative about South Africa's drawbacks and, and the fact that we don't have infrastructure or clean drinking um, drinking waters. But actually, we can drink the tap water in South Africa. So, so in a way, that that kind of contributed to my state of mind and and the fact that um, I was actually quite quite angry, you know, uh, in, in some parts that that uh, my country was was viewed so negatively by world, but then then actually I started realizing these other countries are not perfect as well. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm. But and how does how does England compare I appreciate the language um barriers is something you experience in Germany. How do how do you find the difference between the two? Found it. Yeah, well well in terms of language barriers obviously um I still can't 
understand the Scotties and the Welsh, but uh, <laughs> thank you. I, I can understand the the other. I guess sort of well, Northern Irish. Yeah, uh, there, there was a lawyer at our work. Uh, he's pretty senior. I'm not, I'm not going to name him on the podcast, but um, so he's Northern Irish. And I once asked the first time I sort of met him. I was, asked him what what part of Scotland are you from, and he was like. Well, <laughs> Um, <laughs> maybe this guy needs a, needs a bit of education. So, so no, I mean, I guess this is just an example. So I struggled with the accents initially. Um, I think I moved to England thinking there were two types of accents, you know, the, the U Grant Notting Hill accent and the, and the Jeffrey Boycott cricket accent. <laughs> so, um, and, and yeah, so, so even just how different towns in close proximity can can have a different sort of dialect. It just, just still amazes me. Because in South Africa, very much, it's it's a North and a South accent. Uh, it's a Johannesburg or a Pretoria and a Cape Town accent. Yeah. Um, you don't really realise regional differences that much in South Africa. No, whereas in the UK, although some of the more sort of Southern ones, like the Sussex accent has died out a little bit, if you go from... Cornwall, it's East Anglia, Liverpool, Manchester, which are so close to each other, Newcastle, uh, um, Birmingham, and that's just within England. And then you go to Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, uh, Republic of Ireland, they're all speaking English, but with so many different accents. It's it's an, a very, very different, very different sound, isn't it? No, except, well, I guess in Cornwall and Devon, I've, I've heard quite a lot of people speak because they, they argue on what goes on first. Is it the jam or the cream? You know, so. <laughs> well, there are also those, yeah, yeah those, those colloquialisms, which obviously will never get, yeah. never get agreed either. Uh, but the, uh, the thing about England and moving here, yeah, actually, so I mentioned uh, working sort of manual labor jobs and, and just, and there was a particular time in my life where I was uh, working actually with two, uh, people from Nigeria, two guys from Nigeria, mm. uh, and the three of us all had master's degrees, and we were doing manual labour at uh, on the London Overground. And I remember distinctly we were we were tasked with digging uh, some sort of hole where they're going to sort of um, put some poles in uh, or some construction. I didn't know we were just there to dig, but but we didn't even have a shovel. So we, so so, but. You know, we started actually digging it by hand uh, initially, and and just just you know that that mental state of mind of thinking, you know, here you are, uh, your reality sort of sinks in. Um, what am I going to tell my my people back home? And so, you know, what have I done in England for the last few years and stuff? Um, well, my work visa is probably going to expire, and I'll I'll go back to South Africa failure. So uh, that is why coming to Brighton. Uh, was 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 such an important part of my life as well. You know, get, getting a temporary job here initially down here mm -hmm. in 2009 was uh, was crucial. I guess um, everyone has has these moments that they think back of in life, and uh, yeah, that was a profound moment. That 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 you know, your life changed for the better. And I think that phone call I got from the recruiters saying there's an interview or a position in Brighton that, that was one of those. And I moved down to Brighton and lived in a youth hostel in a 10-bedded dormitory for two years because yeah. I didn't have a permanent residency. I didn't have a permanent work visa. And obviously, I mentioned I, I started on a temporary contract basis. And, and my work visa for the first year, actually, it got extended uh, three different or four different times, actually. So, so yeah, every quarter. 
it got extended. And in the second year, uh, again, I was I, I needed to to earn a certain amount of money to to get on the what was then called the highly skilled visa or the tier one general visa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so basically, I again on my contract position had to had to just uh, keep calm and carry on. And how did you how did you cope with that? Given the um, impending challenge of every three months, not knowing whether or not you had a job anymore, how did you cope with that? It it actually, you know, um, I probably did my best work, Peter. Then, because uh, because it was, you know, you were actually liberated in your mind of thinking that, yeah, you're only here for a, for a short time. Just give it your best crack, give it your best shot. Um, and also, obviously, I was traveling quite quite extensively over weekends and living in the youth hostel. Mm-hmm. Helped helped quite a bit with saving money. So obviously you only pay uh, the, the four nights that you you know the Monday to uh, Thursday that, uh, that that you stay in the youth hostel. The Friday you check out and then you jump on a National Express bus or you or you get a a Ryanair ticket somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I managed to see quite a bit of the world and I was I was I was free in many ways that I think others others weren't. Um, yeah. Obviously other people had. Had other privileges and things that they were looking forward to, but I felt that this was uh, this was a very fulfilling experience. So, again, if I were to go back to South Africa, I could say that I used my time in the UK to to the best of my ability, you know, and uh, and I and I did everything that I could. Uh, was that when you completed your outstanding work, really? <laughs> I think no. This was this was. Uh, this was some time later, and you do love that story, don't you? Oh, I do. You've got to tell it. Yeah, yeah. No, so this was a, what was around sort of 2014. So I just moved uh, uh, from, uh, got a new job in a different part of the organization. And I was uh, tasked with doing certain research projects. And some feedbacks from some of the senior managers came back that, uh, you know, uh, Billy's clarity of, um, uh, in his analysis and, and and the way that he that he writes it in a, in a clear and, and succinct manner, they they really like it and they would like like him to continue. And so so uh, there's this one person at our work who sort of said that yeah, Billy, that was so well done. I think so that he used the word well done initially, uh, or the words well done. I said yeah, thank you, thank you very much. And uh, and obviously, like you know, in, certainly maybe in your job, but. Most other jobs at uh, the place we work, there's regular team meetings where you get checked up on your tasks and et cetera. And, uh, but also then, I guess, just talk generally about what you've got on and what what you've achieved in the week. And so this person that I mentioned earlier mentioned in uh, in one meeting, say, oh, Billy, your, your referrals are, are outstanding. And I was like, well, yeah, actually, yeah. I think she mentioned previously, you know, well done. So and now they're outstanding, you know, I'm, I'm only getting better here. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then the next day, so it was a daily catch up at that stage. And, and this person said, well, Vili, I uh, just want to tell you, your referrals are outstanding. I was like, um, yeah, yeah this, is, this is getting better. You know, I, I'm just getting all this good feedback every single day. And then the next day, let's, let's use it. Wednesday in this example uh, this person came okay, well, but I really have to talk to you, you know it's your your, your intel logs are outstanding so, well I know I'm, I'm doing good work and you don't have to tell me every day and stuff and 
And they said, no, you, but you haven't done them yet. There's two that, that you haven't done. And I was like, oh, well, okay, sorry. I've forgotten about them and stuff. Or, or they weren't clearly rooted to me. And stuff. To be fair, I had a, you know, they, they weren't. So it wasn't clear that, that I had them. But, but basically, so I confused uh, the meaning of a word outstanding. That was but, quite funny. Well, we, me and this person, we still laugh about it uh, to this day. Yes. Well, as do, as do we. Uh, well, I do generally more so than you, but certainly... Um, it's a good story. Um, so yeah, so and so you were you worked lived lived moved to Brighton when? November two thousand and nine. Uh, and when did you get a? Or was it a permanent contract after those those multiple three months? Yes. So I got a permanent job. Again, when I applied for another position in in, in the organisation, so there wasn't a permanent job available uh, in the team I was working in at the time. So it, I think this was around April 2011, Pete. I need to go and check, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that was that was around that time. So that's quite a long time to be on a, a form of temporary contract. That's over two years. Uh, no, well, not quite. No, so so no. November 2009. Oh, eight. Um, so yeah, yeah so eight, around that time. But the other the other important thing to remember there is, as a temp, I didn't have a statutory holiday, so. If I wanted to take time off, it was unpaid. And I actually did not take off any time in that period except for the opening game of the 2010 FIFA World Cup, which my manager at the time said, yeah, you know, very happy for me to, to attend the, uh, or actually not attend, but to watch the opening ceremony in the afternoon. So leave at 12 or whatever. I can't remember. But, uh, but yeah, so I did not have any holiday. Um, in that period, but but I but I had a lot of weekend trips and and things that 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 I rewarded myself. But but yeah, it was that was tough. Looking back at it now, I don't know how I did it. No, and and the, the reason that you talk about the FIFA World Cup that was because that was the South African. Was it South Africa? Brazil? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, South Africa, Mexico, Mexico was the opening go. Yeah, in South Africa with the Vuvuzelas in 2010. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Eighteen months without actually taking pretty much more than a, a half a day's holiday. That's right, Pete. Yeah, it's unthinkable in today's uh, in today's world. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, to be fair, um, that that just allowed me to to work more, and I guess I, I needed I needed the confidence to to um, to tell myself, listen, I I can I can stay here, and it, it well, it gave me more time to do to actually build up more UK experience as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on those three-month contracts, that that extra month essentially that I that I worked, it 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 all counted. Gosh, and then so you yeah, so you got. And what was it? You you talk about that moment when you were working on the overground, um, doing manual labour with your hands, and you was that what made you look for something else? So you talk about these moments in your life. Is that what made you? move and no not at all no it was just you know i was looking for work all the time but but i mentioned it was the uh the global financial crisis at the time there, mm. were, there were not many jobs around unless you worked in insolvency or uh, credit restructuring or something like that uh, and but yeah so so i basically again sort of registered myself with with various agencies sent out cvs to many people but it was a uh, it was a very this was very tough going. I would maybe occasionally work yeah from some people, but there was nothing substantial for for a year that I could find. 
And what was it about Brighton that that made you move? Well, just the fact that I got a job, Pete. So yeah. I would have I would have moved anyway um, at yeah. that stage. Um, certainly, moving here was uh, was 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 great. Um, it was a bit of a strange one. I was I was actually super happy and and super mad at myself at the same time. I was I was happy that obviously there's this beautiful seaside. Uh, city outside of outside of the big smoke that I could I could visit and and move to but but mad at the same time because I lived a a year or two or two years in London without uh, without ever thinking of coming down here so it was uh, it was like kicking myself at the same time. But then you've now been resident and you've got your you've got your passport and you yep. have your own flat in Brighton and you have got done... my citizenship and yeah yeah like you mentioned got my flat so. Yeah, but it's crazy to think that. Uh, yeah, what is it? Thirteen years ago, it was a it was a completely different, uh, a different story. So, and what was it there for? So, you, you know, you were you were living in the hostel and on a temporary contract, and then you got a, a permanent one, and then presumably you that led you to being able to buy your flat, and and again there was citizenship, and you kept travelling. But but what was it that that really made you think about well? Actually, I want to do more of this, and but but start to document it. Where, where did that come from? Yeah, Pete. So I think, uh, I guess to summarise that for you, I mean, I, I'm, I really struggle articulating to people who ask me. Let's say, you know, how's Italy, or how's Finland, how's Estonia, how's Brazil, how's Argentina? You know, it's. I really need to sort of dig deep and 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 think about what I'm going to say, and then one of the reasons. I take so many photos was was precisely that. So to to let the photos help me tell tell the story, but I don't know if if you get these memories on Facebook uh, with some of the photos you've taken, say five years ago or six years ago on this particular day. This is what you've done. Uh, and Facebook have been spewing out these photos for a for a while now for me, and I I, I sort of looked at some of them. I was like, well not entirely sure where, where this was and then you open the photo and you think about oh yeah no, okay that's Italy or that's Denmark or mm. or that's Mongolia but then there was this one picture that actually was on my wall and 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 it was it said it was eight or nine years ago I can't remember exactly what I think maybe eight and and I just looked at it and I just I just could not recognize it it was like I I wasn't at this place and it really bothered me and and I think doing some introspection and um, ref- on, upon reflection, I I realized that I, t- I probably take too many photos. And mm-hmm. I it, certainly in some places that, uh, that, that amazed me at the time, you know, you, you, you focus on the, the photography part of the traveling rather than actually taking, taking in the experience. But also then I guess the photo does not tell a, a story that a video can or a 360 degree uh, video that I know many people take now sort of tell. So, so what I decided to do was, was firstly just to take more videos on my travels. And then I started when I actually showed friends and family that and, you know, you could actually see them knowing a place a lot better than a photo. And I think the whole YouTube thing just, just sort of grew from there. Say. So Okay, well, I'm not just going to take videos. I'm actually going to do vlogs. I'm going to be documenting my experiences. So I don't take any photos on any of my trips anymore. Just videos and 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 doing vlogs and 
And as I mentioned to you earlier, what that does, it, it obviously creates memories for myself. Mm-hmm. But it also, um, because the other the other thing is, I've been to seventy countries. I think I can I can give something back to people who uh, who would like to travel, or maybe some of some people don't have a means to travel or the opportunities that, that I've uh, managed to sort of worked for in my life. So so this is an opportunity to give back to some people as well, and and to have that sort of support base or subscribers and 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 and, and do something beautiful together. Yeah, and just so because people out there listening, it's it's Villy Explore is the name of the channel on YouTube. Is that right? That's right, Pete. Yes, but yes. at your Afrikaan, Villy is spelt. Yeah, with a W. Yeah, yeah. So it's pronounced uh, Villy, like like Villa, Aston Villa. So the W is essentially pronounced as a V. But yeah, so it's it's um, yeah, Willy Explore, I guess, is the. It's, it's, it's the other way to sort of call it, but but the South African pronunciation is Billy, and it's W I double L I E. That's correct. Space and then explore, Billy explore. Okay, uh, and in 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 terms of, of you know, I didn't realise you'd, you'd stop taking photos. It's a really interesting sort of actual thing, and because uh, as you say, people are especially with the likes of Instagram and and, and Twitter. Um, it seems that photos are, are yeah. Important. Yeah, but for you, you've never, gone the other way. I've never really cracked the whole Instagram uh, Instagram thing. Although I I am very interested in learning a bit more of of TikTok in due course. So so that I, I believe could be a game changer just to get the younger generation interested in in some of my footage as well. And do you do YouTube Shorts, which I, I think is a, a similar thing to TikTok, where you. I don't do them at the moment, Pete. No, but it's it, it is certainly something that I that I could that I could do as well. Um, but I I do tend to find that that doing the longer vlogs uh, is is more rewarding for, for me personally as well. Um, and it also I think just just it, it's nicer to put together. Mm-hmm. But but if if the shorts does mean um, or if it if it will help me grow my channel, definitely it was something that, that I will look into. Or perhaps um, at least as a summary for each video, for each full vlog. If that's right, yeah. But it's uh, I guess the first the first aim is just to get to that uh, that, that milestone of a, of a thousand, as I mentioned, and mm. and then there's there's all kinds of perks uh, that that come from. I think then your um, I speak under correction, but I think your shorts could also be a bit longer. But certainly your live streams, I know I know can can go quite longer as well. Uh, but also, I guess I, I don't. This is this is another thing. Maybe people have got some advice on this. I don't really want to be known as as the shorts guy. I want to be known as the guy who who puts out the great travel blocks. And and maybe that's part of my challenge. I I don't really know what my audience necessarily wants at this at this point in time. I've only put out about twenty nine videos uh, at this stage. I'm still learning, you know, what what the audience wants. And I guess the audience is still sort of checking me out as well. Those are what I can produce. But. Uh, mm. Yeah, this is it's it's all exciting, exciting part of a journey. The bottom line is it's 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 something to document my travels, and if it allows other people to explore with me, or if it if it provides joy to others, then that that's a huge bonus. Yeah, which comes back to as you say, the reason that you you started to do them in the first place, which was to give back to the people that supported you in your travels in the first place. That's right, because I mentioned, like you know, I I never had the financial means to do it um, growing up in South Africa, but I had I had all the emotional and and, and psychological support 
I think many people might actually have the opposite. Uh, you know, that they might have a fin financial freedom stuff to do it, but they don't really have the psychological or the or the mental support. Of, you know, people in their families might not necessarily be supportive. They they would want them to say, uh, live a more linear life. Uh, you know, find a job, get married, have, have kids, kind of lifestyle. So so different people have different challenges. But if I could, like I said, if I could help some people along the way uh, to make the right decisions, then then I'll be very happy. Yeah, and it, well, interestingly, I had Phil Yeoman, who you would know from TPR, I would imagine, for, uh, yes. on last last episode a few weeks ago, and he's uh, talking about a design for life and actually how you know, people perhaps are starting to live less linear sort of lives with the greater opportunities that are out there. So yeah, if you, there's no reason why you can't help influence uh, yeah no well i mean i don't necessarily want to uh you you know tell people to follow my blueprint or anything you know everyone is unique but i guess what i'm saying is if someone wants to do the unconventional wants to do the non-linear thing then then i can certainly um help them in that regard or, or sort of help them sort of uh, get their mind right for for that um type of lifestyle because uh yeah, you know, and, and, and I can do the amount of traveling that I do because I don't have the mm. responsibilities of a, of a wife and children. Obviously, if I did, it would be a completely different um, different ball game. I wouldn't be able to travel, so I'd have, I'd have responsibilities. So, so you gain some, but you lose some in life as well. And, mm. and life is about choices and, 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 and sticking to those choices. Well, and interestingly, you talk about sort of not necessarily wanting to show people exactly what to do necessarily. But I remember I saw something with Kyle Walker being interviewed yesterday on the BBC um, by Alex. I can't remember her name, um, the, the, the female footballer about. But they were talking about different managers and how you take the things that you like, don't you, from different people and you put it into your own life. And equally from a, a fashion show of, of someone perhaps with a plastic bag on their head or... or um, something on their, their wrist, you're wearing a whole outfit. You may not like most of what they're doing, but there might be something in there that you think, ah, yeah, actually, I can take that and put it into my life. So just putting yes. out who you are is is the key, and people will take whatever they want to take. It's it's not about that. It's about you just being true to you and letting them. Um, yeah, and you should and you should be prepared out. to fail, and you should and you should know that you are going to fail. Mm. Uh, my dad has got a good saying. He says there's there's more losses in life than there are wins uh, in people's lives, and uh, and you need to take the, uh, you know, the better with the better. So you are going to fail, and and it's just about how you adapt from it. What did what do you learn from it? What is there? Some, is there something that you could do better next time, or is there something you know? Um, what what would you have done differently if you if you had the opportunity again? Um, so, but I think that that sometimes that fear of failure is also a big part of why people are not wanting to take say. Um, time out from work to travel or even on weekends or, or, or book that flight ticket to to that destination where I always wanted to go um, that fear factor and it's uh, I would say just go for it go and embrace it and and actually uh, yeah if you fail then then there's a lot of lessons you can learn from it F failure is is, is is exactly is exactly that it's not it's actually not failure it's education well and actually that's interesting you a good friend of mine and i um have talked recently about the whole 
it's actually when you fail that you learn the most and it's the people that can adapt in the face of failure and the, the key point is being able to adapt in the face of failure because that's where you do your greatest learning we've almost seemed to have shied away from that and perhaps that's one of the reasons why people struggle so much at certain times nowadays and perhaps they didn't used to because the failure is, is almost not accepted it, it's sort of not the right thing to do but actually it's what is it, it's not only is it probably the right thing to do it's the only thing to do if you ever really want to learn because that's where you truly find yeah, out yeah i guess i yeah i guess there is an, uh, an element of you should pick your battles and you should not set your goals too high true um, you should you should you should have smart objectives you should you should set your achievable goals so there's no way you know new year's res- i'm not a huge fan of new year's resolutions uh, by any stretch but sometimes it's good to have one or two things that you want to say achieving a particular month or in a year but if, you, if you're going to write down a list of 15 things that you want to achieve in a month obviously that is setting yourself up for failure and and whereas i i do think failure is 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 good and and you can learn from it but setting yourself up to fail is never good so i think i just want to make that distinction clear there yeah and i think so the key there though is is if you are if you even if you do set yourself up to fail if you can learn what that is and therefore change how you set your goals that in itself is learning through the failure isn't it yes it's being able to identify the failure and and being prepared to go through that to learn about getting making things better rather than as you say constantly try and take on too much and not realizing that that itself is what's creating the failure not you not achieving yes particularly okay so i was actually um i think i sort of I missed this earlier, you know, when I talked about my background, but but at university, I did internships at a mining uh, company in South Africa. And and this was another reason actually for me uh, trying to sort of explore a little bit more of a world before I get settled, because because the people in that environment were were literally sort of living uh, a very one dimensional life, you know, so I would I would, let's say, leave the mine in, in June and come back for the December, for the summer holidays in South Africa. Mm. Um, obviously, it's the, the other way around here, but but summer in December. And you would go to the local pub and you would say you would see the same people sitting on the same chairs, drinking the same stuff uh, on the day. And, and maybe for them, that was their comfort zone. That was what they were doing. That was So I'm not criticizing that at all. Um, but at the time, I, I, I genuinely was, was scared that I would fall into that, uh, uh, that type of life. Uh, there was just something that, that I had inside of me that wanted to do some things, some things different, differently from others. And uh, yeah, it's just, I guess the lesson there is, is don't, be, don't be afraid to listen to that voice. If something for yourself, if, 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 if you are uncomfortable with something or if something tells you this isn't right, it often is the case, hmm. uh, but it's not right for you. Yeah, you're almost like a Henry Ford. If you think you can, or if you can't, you're probably right, aren't you? Yes, hmm. exactly. But I'm mindful that we've been going for over an hour, and we actually was have, it was a good chat. Have, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I'm not. No, no, absolutely. It's been it's been brilliant, and it's been so enthralling and absorbing and enthralling that I I didn't really want to break it. So I haven't done the halftime. No, but 
what I thought I would do, given that you, we started talking about lessons and a bit more philosophically in terms of, of learning from failure, but whilst equally not setting yourself up to fail. So I just thought I'd probably draw it to a close there um, in terms of you, but just what you've, you've talked about so far, but just ask you really for your, for your three key takeaways. Yeah. Okay. I guess, I guess the first, the first takeaway is uh, be true to yourself. So what I'm, what I mean by that is if, if, if you think something isn't right for you uh, or something, maybe the other way of looking at it, something is right for someone else, that doesn't mean it's right for you. You need to be true to yourself. And the only way that you'll really know that is through life experience. So you will, uh, you will learn over time what type of person you are or what you want. And also it might change. So you might like bacon and eggs one day and the next day you might not. So, and, and you should be expect, you should, you should um, embrace that, that side of it as well, but, but be true to yourself. I guess the, the second takeaway is, is have a good support network around you. So like I mentioned, you know, with my, my family was very supportive of, of my choices that I made in life. Um, and, and, and what I did uh, to date and also friends around me uh, that have inspired me as well and, and supported me. So surround yourself with the right people. Don't surround yourself with negative people or people who want something different from you. It's one thing to, to have people who, are, who give critical advice, but that should not be confused with people who actually want to take you down, uh, who are jealous of you or who wants to do things uh, just to benefit themselves. And I guess the third one is just just enjoy life. Just remember, you've got one shot at it. You've got one crack at it. Um, go and go and do those things that, that you wanted to do uh, in life, and uh, and and have those have those bucket list items, you know. So especially, I guess now after COVID, which I'm surprised we've not really talked about, because uh, you know we were talking about other things, but it's been such a a, a huge change in our lives in the last. Um, few years the world has actually changed quite a bit but the one thing that COVID, one positive out of out of COVID is that we we are now no longer we, we no longer have that excuse of of, of not doing things that, that we don't want to do and, and and enjoy our lives and stuff because because life is short and it's there to be lived so I think that's my that's my three takeaways Pete oh, that sounds good Will. so uh, yeah so thank you very much. I, this, I think I'll, I'll draw it to a close there. It's, um, it's been an amazing, amazing hour. Uh, so um, talking to Billy and his journey, frankly, it seems to me like all over the place, which in a way is sort of where our, our conversation has gone. We're from growing up in South Africa and, and, and speaking Afrikaans to begin with and then going to school, uh, moving around the, the Cape uh, area of, of, of South Africa. Um, going to university uh, and uh, and then realizing that you wanted something more and, and with Johannesburg as an option but not wanting what you want actually making that decision to to go and study and 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 spend a year in first Germany and then, and then London before moving down to Brighton and, and continuing your quest to keep traveling and, and using travel as a as a not just an escapism but presumably as a as a as a as a, as a positive and a um, uh, uh, support for your own mental health and, and getting to the point now where you're able to give back by making your own vlogs on your YouTube channel, Vili Explore, V-I, sorry, W-I-L-L. W-I, yeah. Uh, it's a cultural education, Pete. 
It is. That, it that's is. what it is at the end of the day. And clearly, I'm not listening well enough to you. I still can't remember. First off, it's a W, not a V. But um, <laughs> yeah, Villy, Villy, explore. Um, you'll, you'll get there one day, mate. Will right. there eventually? eventually <laughs> when you come to Wales and do a vlog for for yeah, us, there. absolutely. Um, but and then just finally, just just sort of leaving us with those three uh, and quite quite sort of simple but profound ideas of just being true to yourself. Having a good support network around you, as you said, with your mum and, and your friends and, and other people now, presumably in and around Brighton, um, with the fact that your parents still live in South Africa. And then finally, just enjoying life. Uh, you've only got one shot at it, especially with COVID now not giving us that excuse of, of not allowing us potentially, certainly legally to travel or, or having additional restrictions. But we've got a chance to, to, go, to get out there and really, as you do, explore. Bill. So That's right. Um, I didn't have a chance to, to sort of do my halftime break or I felt it would be the wrong thing to do, but I would certainly recommend anyone that's interested in reading it, reading Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. Um, quite a fascinating book about, number one, how um, the, 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 the shoe companies have potentially caused more injuries than they have benefited us from the new from these new trainers that we have that actually when we ran on flat-footed shoes there were a lot less injuries and this support that they our trainers now give us don't necessarily help us uh, that's documented by evidence not that's not just me um potentially challenging the the big um shoemaking companies but uh, that's one of the claims in the book secondly actually um how we as homo sapiens outlived the neanderthals um, that we were also around at a similar time a different type of potential humans because of the way that we actually ran um, and used the ability to outrun animals as a way of actually make uh, of, of claim of, of, of gaining meat because what we were able to do we're what we're able to do unlike other animals we can sweat to keep ourselves cool whereas animals have to pant and we could actually get to a point from a distance of interestingly about a marathon's distance where we could stop the likes of the antelope etc from from running because they had to stop and pant and at points catch up with them uh, uh, and, and and make the kill but but finally most amazingly from the book that it shows is that um actually that we did it all together that men and women and children would go on these runs and it was only in the latter stages that the most elite would would kill off the the animals but actually we all did it together and how much of a communal society we all had much before the days of the industrial agricultural revolutions and this perhaps more social media based uh, environment that we have a, a really fascinating book that sort of delves into this and the mexican runners of Ta the tarahama huma humara sorry um but thoroughly recommend that to anybody but um yeah just coming back to villi just a, a big thank you to villi for coming on um, a big thank you to everybody out there for, for listening to this episode and, and also everybody is similar to the way that really talks that has been on this happy hockey journey so far and has made um, what what it is today. So, yeah, uh, uh, I'll leave it there for, for today, but wish everyone uh, a pleasant week and I will speak to you soon.